Good morning again. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7 will be our sermon text for this morning. Before we uh, read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we do uh, long to hear from you. Uh, We long to hear from you through your word and by the work of your spirit in our hearts our minds. So we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us, uh, that we would um, hear your word, that we would understand your word, that your word would uh, be planted deeply in our hearts, that it would take root, that it would bear fruit, that by your spirit through your word you would draw us closer to you and transform us into the image of your son. Father, we pray that you would do that work this morning um, in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirits and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Life is full of challenges. How does that sound to you? And we're often tempted to think that it sounds depressing, as if a challenge were a bad thing. This is why we so often uh, run away as soon as things get difficult. Uh, We we don't want to face the heartache. We don't want to face the relational strain. Uh, We don't want to be honest with people. We don't want to really tell them what we really think and then stick around for the hard conversations which follow. This is why so many of us uh, wanted to avoid Thanksgiving dinner with our families, if we're honest. We think of challenges in life as mere obstacles to be avoided. And this is a false assumption. Uh, Think about the history of the church. Think about uh, church doctrine, right? Uh, True doctrine got hammered out in the context of the challenge of false doctrine. It's not as some suppose that people kind of made up orthodoxy along the way, but, but that the challenge of false doctrine forced the church to wrestle with the truth and articulate it in a clear and concise way. It was the challenge of false doctrine that gave us the great creeds of the church. And that was true on into the Reformation. This is true in your own life. 
God uses conflicts in our lives to shape us. So James chapter 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Or Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Of course, this suffering might mean you know, natural or national disasters, or it might mean the everyday relational breakdowns of community in a fallen world. Whatever the case, challenges are are not simply obstacles to be avoided. They are the loving hand of our merciful Father, shaping us into the image of His Son. And in the midst of uh, the challenges of the early church in Acts chapter 6, and in the midst of the, the, the response of the apostles, we learn about four things. Uh, We learn something about diversity, something about limitations, something about ministry, and something about control. Uh, If you want to follow along, uh, you can find that outline on the back of your bulletin uh, where there's a place to take notes as well if you would like. Uh, First, uh, we'll talk about diversity. Uh, The early church was growing. The apostles continued every day and in every place to teach and preach that Jesus was the Christ. And the result was that many people were added to the faith. But these people, we know from from Pentecost forward, uh, while they were all Jewish, they were culturally and linguistically diverse. Uh, Acts chapter 2 says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And on that day, uh, the day of Pentecost, uh, they were hearing the word of God, each in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. They were hearing the disciples tell in their own tongues the mighty works of God. The result was, you may remember, that 3,000 people were added to the church on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 diverse people. All Jewish people, but Jews who spoke different languages, who were shaped by different cultures, uh, cultures from every part of the known world, which is the point of that long list. It's, It's not to be comprehensive, but representative of the whole world. And here's what we find. One of the first challenges in the church was not about theological differences, but about this cultural diversity. Look at uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. You see, there, there were two groups of people in the church. There were the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And uh, the, the, the two terms refer to Greek-speaking people on the one hand and Aramaic-speaking people on the other. Uh, so the Hellenists were Jews from around the world who grew up in the larger Roman culture who spoke Greek. And uh, many of these Jews retired to Judea or to Jerusalem uh, where they knew that they would be cared for according to Levitical and Deuteronomy. 
Deuteronomic law. So even though they, they lived all their lives in some other part of the Roman world, when they got a little bit older, they retired to Jerusalem where they could be cared for according to the law. Uh, the Hebrews, though, were the Jews from Palestine. Uh, they grew up in, in Jewish culture. They spoke Aramaic. And uh, the distinction here, then, it's not a racial distinction. It's not a religious distinction, but it's a distinction of, of culture and language, right? They, they had a different culture. They had a different language. And, of course, that difference was enough of a difference to create problems, And uh, the complaint uh, arose, and it arose against the apostles. Uh, Remember, uh, the the church was bringing uh, money, laying it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 4, verse 35 says, The apostles then distributed it to any as they had need. And so the complaint here is that certain people, certain group of people, were being neglected in the daily distribution. Who is the accusation against? Who is accused of neglecting these people? Well, in the end, it's the apostles, because they were the ones in charge. They were the ones overseeing the distribution. And uh, think, it, think about how easily this could have gone south at this point. Uh, it would have been easy for either side to take offense. The people could have stopped trusting the apostles. How quickly right, do we go from slight oversight to feeling slighted? The people could have begun to grumble and gossip about their leadership rather than talk to them. The apostles could have dismissed their concerns. Uh, They could have insisted that everything was under control, and uh, they could have said that the Hellenists were just being too sensitive, they were reading too much into things, that they were just grumblers uh, or malcontents. But the apostles as leaders are patient here, and they already know what Peter will more fully discover in Acts chapter 10, where he says that God shows no partiality, Acts 10.34. And there, Peter is talking about ethnic partiality, uh, what we typically call prejudice. God shows no partiality, Peter says. You read the same thing in the book of James, James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. There, uh, James is talking about economic partiality. Uh, but whether it's ethnic or economic or cultural or linguistic, whatever the distinction, right, black or white, rich or poor, culturally traditional or culturally progressive, uh, whether one speaks Greek or Aramaic or Spanish or French or Russian or Chinese, right, the point is God shows no partiality, Romans 2, verse 11. And as James goes on to say, James 2.9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. See, even the Old Testament law commands us not to show partiality. Uh, Leviticus 19.15, you shall not be partial. It's pretty straightforward. And so the apostles take this concern seriously. Uh, they, they listen to the complaint against them by the Hellenists. So we can even start out asking, okay, where do I show partiality? Where do you show partiality? Where do we as a church show partiality? Where do we need to be humble and to repent, to be open to correction by the complaint of others in our midst? Or let me tweak the question a little bit. Uh, How do we need to be sensitive Uh, to the the genuine cultural diversity in Champaign-Urbana 
in such a way that shows that God shows no partiality, and neither do we. And, and make no mistake, right? I mean, this, in the end, is about the character of God. Uh, this is, the, is what kind of God we serve. We serve a God who created all people, who delights in diversity, and who is calling men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself. And what we do as a church should, at least in our own uh, little way, reflect that. See, this is the, this is the challenge of diversity. We, we need to show no partiality. Of course, here's the problem. Uh, it's really easy to say, show no partiality. The truth of the matter is, we, we do. Uh, we, we show partiality in big ways and little ways. We're often prejudiced against people who are different from us. We look down on, on people who are different from us, whether economically or ethnically or academically or politically or culturally. Why do we do that? Why do we look down on others who differ from us? Uh, in the end, it's because we don't believe the gospel. If we are to think about diversity rightly, we need to believe the gospel deeply. We judge others often uh, to make ourselves feel better, right? We, we look down on others who are different from us so we can boast in who we are. We need the gospel. Uh, when I talk about the gospel, of course, I mean we, we need the substitutionary, atoning death of Jesus on the cross in the place of sinners. Right? Jesus died for our sins in our place and physically rose from the dead on the third day as ruler of all. Which means in him we, we can have the forgiveness of sins and acceptance with the Father through faith. And, and this gospel is not only uh, not opposed to being impartial, it, it actually enables impartiality. Uh, think, think about it. Um, only when I know who I am in Christ, that I'm forgiven, that I'm accepted, that I'm loved in Christ, am I free not to judge people who are different from me? in order to make myself feel good or look good. See, my identity doesn't come from from cultural or ethnic or academic differences. My identity comes from Jesus. By faith in Him, I stand righteous before the Father as one of His beloved children. That identity and that alone will truly enable us to show no partiality as we encounter diversity in or outside of the church. We not only uh, learn something about diversity as we look at the challenges of the early church, we also learn something about uh, limitations. How often are you confronted by your own limitations? I, I don't know about you, but I am confronted by my limitations pretty much every moment of every day. Uh, first, there's the obvious, right? There's never enough time. There's never enough money. But then there's the more subtle, right? There's not just temporal and financial limitations. There's also mental and emotional and relational, right? I can't solve every problem. I can't serve every person to the same degree. I'm not strong enough or smart enough or fast enough or stable enough for everything. And, of course, I I was never meant to be. Uh, we, We were made to come to an end of ourselves. Why is that? Well, because we were made, We are the creature and not the creator. We are finite and not infinite. We are time-bound and not eternal. We are somewhere, but not everywhere. We know some things, but not everything. We have some power, but not all power. 
Right? So, so what do you do, right? What, what do you do when you come to an end of your strength, your intelligence, your emotional stability, right? What do you do when you run out of time, run out of money? What do, what do you do when, when you're daily confronted by your humanity, by your finitude, by your limitations? Well, look at, at verses 2 to 4. Verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, there is much that could be said from these verses and what follows about the roles of elder and deacon in the church. Uh, much that I'm not going to say uh, because I said it just earlier this summer in a sermon uh, when we were talking about the role of elders. Um, that particular sermon, though, didn't get fully recorded. So I was going to say, go online, you can listen to it if you want, but it's, it's only partially there. But, but I will, if you're interested in, in hearing that or, or reading that, I'll try to either... Um, Make a new recording, recording to put it online, or maybe put my uh, sermon notes online if you're interested. Um, but I, I'm, not, I'm not going to repeat everything that I said then. Uh, it's not that it would be bad to repeat myself. Of course I could, but it's that there's so much more that can be said. Um, I'm going to go on to some other things. Uh, so right now, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things in these verses. Notice again verse 2. Uh, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Why is it an either or? Why can the apostles not preach the word and serve tables? Uh, notice their solution, right? Appoint some to the duty of serving tables, verse 3, so that they can continue to devote themselves to prayer and the word, verse 4. Why divvy up the ministry in the church in this way? Why divvy up the service in the church in this way? The answer is almost too obvious that, that we, so obvious that we overlook it, right? It's because of their human limitations. They, they would have to give up preaching in order to properly serve tables. They can't do both. And lest you think that this is maybe just some kind of a, a 21st century observation imposed on a 1st century text, right? Think about Exodus chapter 18. Way back in Exodus, think about Moses. Moses, in that passage, Exodus 18, he spends all day sitting and hearing and solving disputes uh, uh, from the people of Israel from morning until night. And Moses' father-in-law says, what you are doing is not good, you and the people with you will wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Of course, we could go back even further than that to another leader who was alone. And this time it wasn't his father-in-law, but his father in heaven said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. But for some reason, leaders often ignore God's wisdom and try to do it alone. From Moses to the Twelve. And yet God confronts Moses, he confronts the apostles with their limitations. Sometimes circumstances uh, are, are enough to tell us, hey, I can't do this. That was true of the apostles. Sometimes, as with Moses, right, God has to bring someone into our lives to steer us in the right direction. But the end result is that what the apostles were doing, 
trying to oversee both the service of the word and the service of tables, was not good. They would wear themselves out, and they realized it. The thing was too heavy for them, and they figured that out. They were not able to do it alone, even the 12 of them. And so what, what do they do when faced with their limitations? Interestingly enough, what they do is they embrace their own calling. Think about verses 2 and 4 again. Verse 2, they say, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Verse 4, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. See, there's so much that you cannot do in life. Uh, You're a creature, not the creator. You are limited, not unlimited. What do you do in the midst of those limits and those weaknesses? Well, uh, again, the first thing has to be remember your identity is in Christ. Um, Too often we seek to build our identity uh, off of accomplishments and strengths. Uh, We we never build our identities off of weaknesses and limitations, right? But we try to build our our identity off of what we accomplish and our strengths. So we hide our weaknesses and we boast in our strengths. We exaggerate our gifts. We deny and downplay our limits. Okay, well, obviously that's that's the wrong way of going about uh, knowing who you are, right? But once you have grounded your identity in the gospel, my acceptance is in Jesus. My acceptance is in what God has done for me in the cross, Once we have grounded our identity in the gospel, we can begin to embrace God's particular calling for me. I don't have to do all the things the world tells me I need to be doing. I don't have to do all the things the church tells me I need to be doing. It's the gospel that that frees us from having to be Superman, to do everything, to be perfect, to be strong and smart and capable. The gospel says I'm loved because of Jesus, not because of my performance. So I can be okay with my limitations. My identity is in Christ, not my accomplishments. Now, what is Christ's calling for me? Yet before we answer that, we need to look at the third thing uh, that we learn about from our passage. We learn about ministry. Uh, This was one of those moments in the life of the church uh, when God used the, the challenges of the church to shape it, to mold it into what he wanted it to be. Uh, church polity or church government was shaped by the need of the moment. Um, but, but what we see over time is that this became the norm. Uh, th- this wasn't just a, a moment in time and then uh, God changed things from here on out. Uh, but by the time uh, Paul is writing his letters, this is the norm for church life. Two different sets of leaders. Uh, one overseeing the ministry of the word and another overseeing the ministry of tables. Um, And uh, so Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, uh, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, right? Two offices in the church, overseers and deacons. And this is the the New Testament pattern for church leadership as we read through uh, the epistles. God used the challenges of the church to shape the church into what he wanted it to be, a community that ministered in both word and deed to both body and soul. And uh, with with leaders, ultimately, who led in each of those areas, elders or overseers on the one hand, deacons on the other. And there are a couple things to note here. First is just the importance of this twofold ministry of the church with its twofold office of both elder and deacon. 
Uh, but the second is that the, the dignity of both kinds of ministry. Uh, the apostles did not disparage the, the need to care for the poor in their midst. And they, weren't, they weren't saying it was unimportant. Uh, they didn't say, oh, it, it's the church's job to take care of the soul. We don't care what happens to their bodies. They didn't say that. Uh, no, they, they set up actually two parallel ministries in the life of the church. The ministry of the word and the ministry of what they call here, the ministry of tables. The ministry of providing for the needs of the poor in their midst. Uh, right? you, don't, you don't have to be a preacher to have a legitimate God-given ministry in the church. That's not the way it works. Uh, both the ministry of word and deed are necessary in the life of the church. Uh, and, and third, what we could add to that, that while these two ministries of elder and deacon, uh, these two offices offer sort of the framework um, for ministry in the church, that there are, are many ways of ministering in the church, many types of service. Uh, so uh, a verse that I never get tired of quoting, 1 Peter chapter 4, As each has received a gift, each in the church has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Right? The, the, the key word there is, is service. Right? Each has received a gift. Each should use it to serve or minister to one another. That's a key word in Acts chapter 6 as well, this word service or ministry. Uh, there's the service of tables and the service of the word or, or the ministry of tables, the ministry of the word. Uh, and again, there, there are two kinds of service, both in Acts chapter 6 and in 1 Peter 4, the service of speaking and the service of serving. It's a little awkward to put it that way, but that's the way Peter puts it. Uh, or the ministry of speaking and the ministry of serving. So the question for each one of us is, how is God calling you to serve or to minister? And by serve, I, I certainly don't just mean what can you do in the church. Uh, your vocation is part of your calling to serve, whatever your vocation is. Uh, we, we often serve chiefly through our work. Our work is, is a way in which we serve the people around us. If you don't serve anyone in your work but yourself alone, you're probably in the wrong job. Whatever your work is, you are serving people. And maybe you don't think about it like that. Maybe you've never thought about it like that before. But that's what our work is intended to do. It's intended to serve those around us. So in what way has God called you to serve? You can't do everything, but you can do what God is calling you to do as you give your time and your energy to it in his strength and for his glory. The apostles recognized that, right? They recognized their own limitations, and, and they embraced their calling as apostles. And so they appointed seven other men to this new ministry right, rather than holding on to both. And, and think about what would have stopped them from doing that. Uh, what, what often stops us? What stops us from calling others to work alongside us? Uh, when we try to prove ourselves, that's one thing that stops us. When we try to prove our worth or prove the value of our work, we feel threatened by others. Again, the gospel of grace means I no longer have to prove myself. Can make, I no longer have to make myself out to be more than I am. So I can be honest about my limitations, even my weaknesses and my failures. And I can invite others to fulfill their own calling alongside me fulfilling mine. Right? We can work side by side. 
each using his or her various gifts without ranking them, without prioritizing them, without feeling the need to say the hand is better than the foot or, or, or the, the arm is more necessary than the leg, right? Paul says, no, the church is a body. Every body part is necessary. The church is a diverse body with a diverse ministry in which we all have a part. The apostles' calling was to preach, to pray, to the ministry of the word. My calling as an elder is, is that same thing, right? To pray and to preach to the ministry of the word. The calling of deacons was to the ministry of tables. And whether that meant food or finances in that context could be either one, actually. The goal was to distribute the resources of the church for the needs of the church. That's what the deacons did. The question for you, then, is what is your calling, right? On the one hand, you, you are you're one individual, one small individual in a big world. You can't do everything. Right? You have God-given limitations. This is my version of a pep talk, right? Um, if you try to reach beyond that, those limitations, uh, you will wear yourself out. That's what Moses' father-in-law told him. You're going to wear yourself out, and the people around you, for that matter. If I try to do everything in the church, I'm not only going to wear myself out, I'm going to wear my wife out and my boys out, probably some of you out with me. We must acknowledge our limitations and embrace our particular callings. What is God calling me to? So what is your calling? How has God gifted you to minister as a part of his church? Well, that's diversity and limitations and ministry forth control. There is a challenge in the passage of leadership. You might even call it a temptation of leadership. Those who are in charge are often tempted to hold on to as much power as they can. Just Google the phrase power grab for news articles, and dozens of news articles will come up about political moves that people have made in November. We love political power. We love to gain it, to have it, to maintain it, and to use it for our own ends. No one would ever dream of giving political power away, right? We hoard it like gold. But giving it away is exactly what the apostles do. And they do it in at least three ways. On the one hand, they they agree to give up some of their authority. Uh, currently, they were in charge of the daily distribution, right? People brought the money to them. They distributed the money as people had need. Uh, but the apostles appoint seven men to this work, giving these men charge of the church's finances. How many people, if they're in charge of the purse strings, are willing to hand it over to somebody else, right? Not many. But that's what the apostles do. They, they give up a work that was once in their hands, put it in the hands of someone else. They not only give up some of their authority to, to other men, but second, they allow the church to choose those men. Right? They, they don't even choose the people themselves. They allow the church to choose them. And, and this isn't unique to the apostles, by the way. In fact, besides certain key leaders in the church, prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament, the apostles in the New Testament, uh, this is the most common way of identifying leaders in the church. Even the leaders whom Moses appointed were first chosen by the people. We see that in Deuteronomy 1.13. This is important uh, for us because it sets a precedent for how we as a presbytery appoint elders and deacons in the church, right? They are, uh, the congregation chooses the men 
and uh, who are then appointed or ordained by the elders. We see that taking place here. The congregation, the people choose these seven men as deacons, but the apostles then appoint them to the task. Of course, the apostles could have chosen the men themselves. Right? They could have just said, here's what we're going to do. You seven guys, you're going to oversee this. But they don't. They, they leave it up to the people. Once again, placing power in the hands of others rather than hoarding it for themselves. They give away some of their authority to other men, and they allow the, the church to choose those men. Most significantly, uh, significantly though, uh, third, those men, those seven men, are all from among the Hellenists. Right? The, the men whom the apostles appoint are all from this cultural and linguistic minority in the church. They're from the, the complainers. Uh, the names are all Greek names. They're not Jewish, and most commentators take this to mean that they are from the Hellenists who raised the complaint in the first place. And, and I want you to think about how humble this actually is. If a certain minority group in your church raises a concern and you decide to appoint a committee to put things right, what do you do? probably make sure everyone is fairly represented on that committee. If there are two sides, we make our committees 50-50, right? So everybody has equal representation. All sides can be heard then. It's not what the apostles do. They, together with the church, appoint seven men from the minority culture, from the Hellenists. The, the Hebrews really have the cultural upper hand in this place, but they simply give up that privilege and say, okay, you, you, this, you think this is a problem? Well, go ahead and deal with it. It's in your hands. I think if we're honest, we are very slow to give any power away. Uh, In fact, frequently we we seek to use our worldly resources to gain power and control, whatever the situation is. Uh, We we manipulate situations for our own advantage. We, We coerce people. We bribe. We flatter. Those are all attempts to gain control of others. If you or I were in the apostles' shoes, we would have kept the issue under our jurisdiction. We would have chosen the men ourselves, maybe, or at least been sure to get a few of our men on the inside. Definitely, we would have made sure the committee was at least 50-50, right? So it was fair. But their willingness to just give up power is amazing to me. And uh, uh, I think part of it goes back to their understanding of their calling, right? They were called to prayer and the ministry of the word. There's tremendous freedom in knowing God's call on your life and not feeling like you need to do everything, But there's more to it than that. It's also resting in the fact that this is God's work. The apostles are trusting God to work through his people, through his church. They don't have to control the details. They don't have to micromanage everything. They're free to let go. Again, it's really easy to say that. It's easy to say, well, just give power away. Don't feel like you have to hoard it all the time and maintain control and keep everything in your hands. But we don't do that. We do the opposite. We try to position ourselves for control, right? We manipulate or coerce, bribe, flatter, right? Why do we do all of that? Because letting go of control is always scary. Think about even the cross. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. His soul is sorrowful even to death, he says. And he prays, Father, if possible, take this cup, yet not my will but yours be done. See, on one level, Jesus does not want to go to the cross. He makes that abundantly clear. If possible, take this cup from me. 
It's painful, right, the cross. It's torture, literally torture, the cross. It would mean the, the wrath of his father falling on him. But he entrusts himself into another's hands. When the mob comes to arrest him, Jesus says he could have called a legion of angels to his side. He could have taken control in a very human way. But he allows himself to be arrested. He allows himself to be crucified. And there on the cross, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Why is Jesus so willing to let go and go with the Father's plan and be arrested and be crucified? Because he trusts his Father. And the Father does not abandon his Son. And so on the third day, Jesus rises from the dead, right? The the resurrection is our great hope. It tells us that the one who is really in control has already worked out the end of the story. We can trust him. We don't have to try to control life. We don't have to make a power grab every chance we get, trying to maintain control of life in order to fulfill our callings. We don't have to do that. We can use our gifts, our God-given gifts, in the circumstances in which God has placed us, trusting our Father to work all things out for our good and His glory in the end. See, see the real challenge of, of, of a growing and diverse community, the real challenge of, of daily life is remembering the gospel in the midst of all the other challenges. Remembering the love of our Father and who we are in Christ. Remembering our identity, that it's in the cross, not in our culture, not in our performance. Remembering the sovereignty of our Father, that all things work out for our good and for His glory in the end. Remembering that just as Jesus endured, so we must endure So that just as Jesus rose, so we will rise too on the last day. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the cross more deeply. We pray that that would shape our life as a church. As we show no partiality, as we love those who are different from us, as we we understand our own callings, as we pursue that with all our heart, as we encourage others in their callings as we rest in your sovereignty in the midst of whatever our circumstances might be. Father, we pray that you would be glorified in those things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.